0: Good morning everyone, welcome, good to have you here, my name is Tom Vanderwell and I'm usually uh, preaching in the auditorium, we have a, another venue right down the hall here and at 9.15 every Sunday we have a service in the auditorium that runs concurrently with this one and so I'm usually in there and I'm going to tell you a story that I've told in that room before but that's what's kind of cool is I can use, reuse stories because most of you haven't heard it. Uh, we just sang that song, Oh, How He Loves Us, and I don't know if you know this or not, but um, the lyrics are actually a little bit different. The lyrics uh, of the original go, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. And we changed it to unforeseen kiss because sloppy wet kiss, just is, it freaks people out. But it, I, I tell you what, I, I'm, I, like the, I like the original, and here's why. Uh, my Vanderwell clan is a very <laughs> affectionate group, which is kind of weird because most Dutch clans are not very affectionate, uh, I find, but I was raised um, witnessing, I mean, my, the Vanderwell family always kissed one another. I mean, I grew up watching my dad kiss his dad uh, and, and mom. I grew up kissing both my mom and my dad. It was just kind of what we did. And so, you know, kissing my dad has, has has been something I've done my whole life without even really thinking about it. Now, the thing you need to know about Grandpa Dean is that when he kisses, he gets his lips. Like this. And one day, I was in the car. I was on a road trip, and my daughter called, and I was having a particularly bad day that day. And so we got off the phone, and she sends me a picture, and it's a picture, a selfie. And in the selfie, she goes, big sloppy wet Papa Dean kiss, Dad. Sending it your way. And here's the thing. I know, I know a father who loves me like a sloppy wet kiss. For me, it it connects to a father who has loved me and been proud of me my whole life. And that, is our God. He wants to connect with us. He wants to love us. He, with all the affection that he has in this circle of love that Pastor Kevin talks about, wants to make connection with us. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today, okay? Uh, If you've got your Bibles, open up to Matthew, the 26th chapter. We are in the season of Lent, and I thought it would be good today to just kind of do a quick Lent and check-in, we got two more weeks till Holy Week, and then uh, we got Holy Week and to Easter, so we've got about 21 days till we get to Easter. How are we doing uh, with the whole Lent thing? I, I enjoy actually watching people engage. And I have found it really interesting because traditionally, Lent is not always practiced by Protestant churches. Because for so many centuries, the Catholic Church were really hardcore about it, prescriptive about it, and it was, it was something that you did. And so when the Protestant Reformation happened, then most of the Protestant churches said, we're not doing that anymore. And so we're, you know, we're among really a relatively minority of Protestant churches that actually has tried to rediscover this season of Lent. And I found it interesting as people connect because people are trying to engage and I've talked to some people, they're like going, you know what? I grew up Catholic. Uh Uh-uh, not doing it. This thing is just, because they know it's kind of stale. And the way it was practiced was not actually spiritually lifting. It was kind of spiritually just disconnected. And then there are others like, Brett, where's my... Our youth pastor was preaching in the auditorium a couple weeks ago, and he's just like, look, I didn't grow up practicing Lent, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Lenten amateur, and I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm doing it right. I don't know if I'm doing it wrong. I don't know what I'm doing. And so we've got people on this spectrum all across the way. And we think of Lent a lot of things about just giving things up, and the teachers have been talking about that the last couple weeks. And that's kind of what we associate. What are you going to give up for Lent? And I have found that there are those Lenten perfectionists that they're going to give something up and I got to do it perfectly. And so they go through Lent kind of like, <laughs> I can't screw up. I can't mess up. I can't mess up. I got to do this just right. And then when they do mess up, it's like, oh, okay, I guess I have to give up now. Wait until next year. Try it again. And then there are the Lenten negotiators. Okay, God, can I, all right, is this enough for me to, Give up, or because I don't really want to give that up. But if, would this is this good enough to give up? So we will kind of do that negotiation thing. Some people um, are <laughs> are Lenten sluggards. Yep, I'm giving up broccoli for Lent. But Tom, you don't like broccoli. Yep. Well, I'm giving up the opportunity that I might actually like it. <laughs> and then there are the Lenten martyrs who walk around. Like they're constantly at a funeral. How are you doing today? I'm in Lent. And I gave up coffee. (laughs) And so we've got all of these different experiences. But can I extend a little grace today? Wherever you're at, however you are engaging with it, that this is not meant to be prescriptive. It's meant to be personal. And what we're, well, Lent is a tradition, okay? It's not scriptural. There's nothing in scripture that says we should practice Lent. It's a tradition, and traditions are kind of funny. I, a couple weeks ago, I wrote a blog post about traditions. The national anthem before a ball game is tradition, Did you know that, actually, the first time the Star-Spangled Banner was sung at a baseball game was in 1918, and it was during World War I, and it was game one of the World Series between the Cubs and the Red Sox, and the third baseman for the Red Sox was a veteran, and so in the seventh inning, during the seventh-inning stretch, he grabbed a microphone and impromptu sang the Star-Spangled Banner. It wasn't even the national anthem then. Uh, That happened in 1931. So he sang the Star-Spangled Banner and it was such an an amazing moment. The crowd went wild. And from that moment on, it became a seventh-inning stretch song. Until World War II, when now we had recording technology so ball clubs around could just play the record, And they started doing it before the game. But it's just a tradition. There's no rule. There's no law. It's, in fact, for decades, you know, baseball, professional baseball, around the 1860s, 1870s, so for decades, it was never sung. But now, it's become this tradition. And I find that traditions sometimes they either become stale because it gets disconnected from the reason we started doing it all together, or it becomes a sacred cow. And even though there's no law, there's no rule, there's no commandment, there's nothing, um, it's, it becomes sacred to us, and we have to hold on to the sacred tradition. And in either case, I think it begins to lose the power of what a tradition is originally intended to do. And that is to connect us as a group to something bigger, something more meaningful. And that's what Lent is. It's a season where we are simply trying to reduce or remove distractions so for that this season we can connect with the story. Connect with what Jesus did for us. Connect with what Pastor Allie in the auditorium the first week of Lent had us meditate on. That he, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. He who had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there's a whole lot in that, and we want to connect with it. God, the Father, wants to connect with us. Phil booth in the 8 o'clock service this morning quoted the scripture, but for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And what is a joy? You are. We are. We are the joy that Jesus went to the cross to make way for so that God could connect with us. He wants, to, he wants that affectionate personal relationship. Do you remember what Kevin was preaching a month or two ago about that inner, that inner relationship, that intimate relationship? Not just a set of rules, not just a set of, of doctrinal things that I, that I memorize and know and mentally assent to, but a living relationship with the creator of the universe. Not out there, but in here. So as you approach Lent, here's what I want to do. I want to take any sense of burden off of you. And I want you to do what Kevin encouraged us to do a month or two ago and go, God, how do you want me to connect with you in this season? What what distractions can I remove so that I can invest in the story? Because what God leads you to do is personal. There's no prescription. And what God leads you to do may be very, very different than what he leads me to do. In fact, I haven't really shared with anybody what God and I are working on. In fact, it took Wendy two weeks to see the change in behavior and go, is there something different here? Yep. I'm just not talking about it. Why? Because it's between me and God. It's personal. So where do you personally connect? All right, so let's connect to the story. We're in Matthew chapter 26. We're at the point of Jesus' arrest. He's been in the garden praying, as Kathy shared with us a couple of weeks ago. God, let this cup of wrath pass from me. We're beyond that. Now we get to the arrest. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Jesus was still speaking to the disciples, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was the large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judah said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men step forward and seize Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions, uh, it doesn't name him here, but in in one of the other gospel accounts, it names this as Peter. Uh, He grabs his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father? He will at once... At my disposal, more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say this must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him. And fled. A couple things I want to point out about the scripture. Uh, one is, in the garden, Jesus had been praying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. And the Luke account says that as he's praying, he's in such agony thinking about the death he is about to die, what he is going to suffer, that Luke says that he began to sweat drops of blood which is actually a medical condition. It has been documented throughout history. This actually happens to people. And usually when it happens, it could be fatal. And in the garden, Luke says, God sent an angel to strengthen Jesus and shore him up. Why? Because he still had his mission to fulfill. He still had his mission to go to. He still had to suffer and die on the cross. And if he's sweating blood and he's in that much agony, he may not make it to the cross. So God sends one angel to, sh- to shore him up. Now he says, don't you know that I could call 10 or you know 12 legions, more than 12 legions, that's 6,000 in a legion, 72,000 angels are at my beck and call? Well, if they were at his beck and call right at that moment, With Peter and the gang they were at his beck and call back when he said let the cup pass from me but he didn't call down the the legions he just got one to help him through now I've got this morning a principal and four players that's where we're going a principal and four players Here is the principle. Spiritual progress, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity are made in pain. Okay? In pain. We tend to in our Western culture, and Tim talked about this in week one, didn't he? We like to avoid pain. We like to get, we, want to, we don't want pain at all. We wanna live in pleasure and ease. And if there's anything that's paining us, doctor, give me a pill and get rid of the pain. We want to be happy and have a life of ease. We want everything to be okay. I don't wanna suffer. We feel like if we were suffering, then something is wrong. God, why are you letting me suffer? But God's prescription throughout the great story is that spiritual progress is made in pain. All right, I'm gonna throw out three scripture references for those of you taking notes, okay? Romans 5, verses three through five. 1 Peter 1, verses six and seven. James 1, verses two and three. Romans 5, three through five. 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7. James 1, 2, and 3. Three different authors Paul, Peter, James. Take a minute this week, go out, look at all three, and compare them because they're all saying the same thing. Rejoice when you encounter trials, suffering, pain. Consider it joy when you encounter these sufferings. For the testing of your faith produces endurance. It helps us to learn perseverance. It takes away all of the stuff of this world and it helps our spirit to grow, to learn the character of Christ because he came as a suffering servant. Spiritual progress is made in the pain. And sometimes I feel like I am standing on the precipice and God is leading me into something. Have you ever been at that point in your life, on your life journey, where you can just kind of feel like, oh no, here we go. All right, job change. Oh, all right, we are. I think, yeah, I, I think I'm headed, uh, I'm not sure this marriage is gonna make it. Oh, God, my child is going to do that with their life? I don't want to go down this valley, God. Legions of angels, please, (laughs) So so I can leapfrog to the next mountaintop. Thank you very much. But God is always leading us into the valley because that's where we spiritually grow up. So we've got four players in this story. And I want to think about it in terms of just even this, what we're doing with Lent. The first group is actually the crowds. So the week that Jesus was arrested and died and rose again was the Passover festival. Hundreds of thousands, some scholars say even as many as two million People were in Jerusalem for the Passover. But do you know that most of the people in Jerusalem had no idea what was going on? They were just going through the motions, man. They came for the Passover. They did their offerings. They're doing their sacrifice. They're doing their Passover feast. They got their Seder, singing their hymns, doing their thing. They had no idea that Jesus was was dying on the cross. And sometimes we can approach Lent that way. It's just what we do. There's no spiritual connection whatsoever. I grew up in a, uh, in a real high liturgical church. And so for me, we practiced Lent, but you know what? It was, there was no spiritual connection. It was just a tradition. It was just what we did. It was stale. But we had to give something up. And I remember my dad and I, for years, had this thing. My dad um, said I drank too much pop. He always complained. You drink too much pop, You're going to rot your teeth. Okay? So I'd be like, fine. He said, you could never give that up for Lent. Oh, yeah? Well, I will. And I said, oh, yeah, Dad? He said, well, you watch too much TV. Come home every night, lay down, fall asleep in front of the television, and then go to bed. And he goes, all right, well, I'll give up TV. Now, the thing was, he was a CPA, and Lent always falls at tax season. So I think I got the brunt end of the deal because he just came home and worked. But there was no connection to the Spirit. There was no connection to what God was trying to do. There was no connection to the story. It was just something we did. And Jesus said, the sower sowed some seed on the path. And those are like the people who, yeah, they're around the word, but it's, it's like immediately it gets snatched. It doesn't even have time to germinate. It doesn't get buried. It doesn't grow. It just is immediately snatched away. And there's never a connection. Then there's Judas. And Judas, you know, did a lot of thinking about Judas. And I believe that Judas was probably a really good Jewish, traditional, orthodox Jewish guy. I think that he liked the traditions. I think that uh, like a lot of the early Christians, that yeah, hey, I, I I don't wanna abandon my Judaism. I just wanna, and in fact, originally he was pretty excited I mean, for three years, he stuck around with Jesus. But as Jesus got closer and closer to the cross, I can almost feel Judas going going, look, Jesus, I was with you and I was excited about you at the beginning, but guess what, man, the, this is just too much change. Are you kidding me? I mean, talking to women, hanging out with these despicable people and sinners, thumbing your nose at the chief priests and the elders, being disrespectful to them? You know, Jesus, and you heal Gentiles and Romans? I don't like where this is going, Jesus. And you say you're for the poor, but then you this wanton woman comes in and, and cries at your feet and pours nard over you which is like liquid gold, man, that was a, that's a year's worth of wages. And she just wastes it. That could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus, I don't get you. This is just too much. It's time for the authorities, the good orthodox high priest to reign you in. And sometimes I find that there are, there are individuals who get more, yeah, they get, they get, find more important to maintain the orthodox beliefs and traditions than be concerned with what the Spirit is doing. I had this guy when I was an elder at a reformed church in Des Moines before I moved to Pella. And this guy... I swear to you, his name was Jim. I love him. He's a great brother. But I swear to you, he had the book, the Reform Book of Order, whatever that is. I think he had it memorized. He knew every section, every subparagraph, every line. He And so when it came to elder meeting, man, he knew. Hey, hey, well, we're not doing this according to the Book of Order, because the Book of Order says this. And he, I mean, he, he lived it. But, then sometimes he would ask me the most basic questions about Scripture. And I'm like, oh, dude, I think, I think he studied the book of order more than he studied the Bible. And I just never forgot that. He was really, it was really important to him to keep the orthodoxy, to keep the tradition, to keep the order. But when you do that, sometimes you have no connection to what God is actually doing. And some seed... Jesus said, is, it's like that that falls on rocky ground. And it, it kind of comes up initially with joy, but it's got no root. It hasn't matured. And so it just withers. And then we've got Peter. And we all know that Peter denied Jesus. Peter actually followed Jesus to the first set of trials in the middle of the night. He was at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where Jesus met with Caiaphas and then with the Sanhedrin, the, the religious elders, and they put him on trial. And as they're leaving Caiaphas's house to go to the Roman jail, it is just about dawn by then. And Peter is in the courtyard where twice he has said, no, 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 I, I, nope, I'm not associated with him at all. And... Luke records that as they're moving Jesus out of Caiaphas' house, the third time somebody says, no, 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 I saw you with him. And Peter cusses like a sailor, like the good sailor he is, and says, I tell you, I don't know the man. And immediately Luke says, the rooster crowed. And Luke records that at that moment, the rooster crows, and Jesus, who's being led away, stops and looks at Peter right in the eye. Can you imagine that look? So I think that Peter was dealing with two things. Number one, he was scared for his life because he knew that if they arrested Jesus and crucified him, they'd be coming for his followers next. And I think he think it was a shame at having denied him just as Jesus said he was going to do. So in his shame, in his fear, in his worry about himself and his own skin, he slips away. And I find that sometimes we're like that. We get so caught up with the worries of our own life we get caught up in the distractions of what's going on in the world. Um, Wendy told me the other morning, she was, uh, read, I was listening to a podcast and said, um, they said that in the average day, we take in as much information because we're connected to our phones, we're connected to media, constant stream of information. We take in more information in a day than the average person took in a year a century ago. Isn't that amazing? Which means that if that's a year every day, then in three months, we take in as much information as a, someone 100 a years ago took in in a lifetime. Distracted? Uh-huh. And we can get so distracted by what's going on and so fearful of what's happening on the other side of the world and so that we lose sight of what the Spirit of God is doing. And some seed fell amongst the thorns and it sprang up like joy, but the cares of this world choked it. And then the fourth player is John, the Apostle John. John was the only disciple who showed up at the cross. I mean, he deserted at first with all the rest. The prophecy was fulfilled. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. And he's scattered. But he's the only one that showed up at the cross. Why? Well, John is called the disciple who Jesus loved. And I don't know why. I don't know why he got that nickname and none of the others did. But I can tell you this. Scripture says that love casts out fear. And I believe that it was John's love for Jesus. It was Jesus' love for John that he had embraced and experienced I think it was love that allowed him to overcome his fears, overcome his anxieties, overcome his worries. Jesus is dying. My friend is being crucified. And I need to be there with him. Ironically, John is the only disciple that wasn't martyred. He's the only disciple of the 12 that lived to old age and died of old age. Isn't that interesting? And it was John standing in front of the cross that Jesus said, take care of my mom. And he did. And some seed fell on good soil and it produced a fruitful crop. So where am I with Lent? Am I disconnected? Am I going through the motions? Stale? Is Lent my sacred cow? And I'm doing it, I'm doing it right, making sure that I'm doing it dutifully. I told the auditorium family a couple weeks ago that Lent is not about earning spiritual capital, because we take it that way, don't we, sometimes? I'm going to earn some spiritual capital. I'm going to to earn God my merit badge. So when we get to Easter, I can say, yes, I did Lent. Bless me for I have earned my merit badge. (laughs) That's not what it's about. It's about making spiritual connection. Am I like Peter? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I need to do the Lent thing, but gosh, there's just so much going on. So many distractions. So much that I'm worried about. I would just like to say this morning, I'm gonna ask the worship team to come on up. That again, I would like to take the burden off of you. I would like to extend some grace. And just say, hey, 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 wherever you're at, it's not about being perfect. It's not about earning some merit bags. It's not about doing things right. It's about making personal connection with God. So as we worship and sing, I would just like to encourage you to have that talk. God, where do you want me to personally connect this Lenten? It's okay. Listen. Listen in your heart. And then make that personal connection, whatever the Holy Spirit says to you. That's cool, between you and them. I don't need to know. Let's worship God together.